I'm Bob Sewell. I'm a lawyer. In fact, I'm a partner at the law firm at Davis Miles McGuire Gardner. I started this podcast because my clients always ask me, is that even legal? I want to discuss on this podcast how the law affects us and changes our daily lives. I hope you enjoy the show. I hope it is meaningful to you and I hope you learn from it. Thank you. past few months, we've been wading through the entries for our scholarship contest at the podcast, Is That Even Legal? And we've picked a winner. This law student will receive a scholarship of $1,500 for his education at the Sandra Day O'Connor College of Law. So without further ado, I want to congratulate Trevor Cook. Trevor, thanks for the great idea. Please expect us to reach out very soon and provide you with the scholarship. I look forward to interviewing your guest idea. Thanks. Today's guest is Megan Whiteside. I'm so excited to have Megan on. She's a great attorney and she's also a podcaster. Megan has the podcast Mom Life and the Law, and she runs a personal injury uh, practice in the East Coast in the Washington, D.C. and the Virginia area. Uh, so I'm really excited to have Megan on. Ma- Megan, welcome. Thank you so much for having me, Bob. I'm excited to be here and for our discussion today. You know, what's interesting is how you took, you know, being a mom and being a lawyer and smushed them together on your podcast. And it really works. What inspired you to start this blog and start this podcast? Yeah, well, mom life in law was really born out of my own experience becoming a mom. You know, I'm a trial lawyer in Washington, D.C. and Maryland, and my firm also handles Virginia cases. And before becoming a mom, the law was my life. I loved it. I love litigation. I love helping people in a crisis, right? And then all of a sudden, I became a mom, and a huge part of my identity shifted. It is the great being a parent is the greatest, the hardest, but the greatest job you'll ever have. And I had to reconcile these two parts of my identity. And coming back after maternity leave with my first son was one of the most difficult experiences I've gone through. And I really was able to make it to thrive based on the support of other lawyer moms who understood what it was uniquely to be in this position in a really demanding career that we love, um, having children that we love and how to navigate all of the challenges that come with that. And so as I've sort of gone through my motherhood journey and tried to help women who you know are having children coming behind me uh, and the pandemic hit, it really, you know, the, the tremendous pressure that lawyer moms are under was heightened. And I thought, you know what, I can not only help the women in my community that I know, right, in my lawyer mom networking groups, but there's really an opportunity to take the conversation to a, a, a bigger audience. What type of challenges were you experiencing that were different than you expected? Yeah, well, I'm a trial lawyer, right? So some of the biggest challenges were, were having to figure out childcare in time to make it to an 8 a.m. docket, right? When I practice, you know, some of the courts uh, in the jurisdictions in which I practice are, you know, 45 minutes to an hour from my house. So navigating childcare, getting a little one ready, getting yourself ready 
getting to court on time, um, you know, navigating those decisions on, you know, feeding and pumping and all you're trying to navigate with helping your child thrive, but also making sure you're taking care of your clients. You're making sure your work is getting done. So it's really a lot of long hours, a lot of stress. Um, and I think the way I, the way I describe it is lawyer moms are expected to lawyer as if we have no children and parent as if we have no job. And that's really hard on you mentally. Yes. And some areas of law are a little bit more accommodating. Some are not uh, to being a, being a mom and especially being a mom and being a parent and the courtroom can often be unaccommodating. Yeah. Well, and I've had, so, you know, a funny story when my second son was five months old, I had a three day jury trial. It was going to be my first jury trial back after the the birth of my second son. And so, you know, uh, judges really, really don't take well to your cell phone going off in court. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Right. You know, for anyone in there, jurors, litigants, attorneys, anybody, you know, be better turning that cell phone off. But As a mom, you know, my husband works in a very demanding position where he's often separated from his cell phone. Just, you know, he works in DC, you know, there are certain places you go, you're not allowed to have a cell phone. So I always had to be available in case the childcare provider called for an emergency. So I have, you know, do not disturb except for the childcare provider could call through or my husband, right? I thought, okay, in case of emergency, the judge can get mad at me. So I'm in this trial, you know, Andrew's only five months old and my phone starts buzzing, right? Uh-huh. <laughs> my opposing counsel is cross-examining my client, right? So it, my phone is going off and the whole courtroom kind of stops. The judge gets angry. And I had to say, you know, you know, ask for a bench conference up at the bench with the judge and let him know, I, I, your honor, I need to take this call. This is, these are the only people who could get through. Uh-huh. And it was my husband calling about something that was not an emergency. I'm going, oh my gosh, <laughs> the life of a trial, a trial lawyer, mom. It just, I, you know, I had to go back and, and apologize and we were able to get on with the child, but it's just things like that where there, there's so much going on beneath the surface of any, and, and I imagine that and you can probably speak to it as a dad and a busy lawyer, right? There's so much going on beneath the surface that, that parents are carrying kind of that mental load is, is how a lot of women describe it. But, um, you know, we're, we're tackling all sorts of problems at once. No, I, you know, our life experiences changes the way we practice. I practice as you have mentioned in probate and trust litigation. And one of the things I deal with a lot are the issues of the elderly and what happens to elderly people as they age is brutal. And so I'm seeing people go through this uh, in my practice. And then my mom started to age and she got a disease and that you know, that disease and I knew what was happening, what was going to happen. And I saw what was going down, going to come down. And a lot of my clients are elderly widows. And they just have watched this exact scenario with their husbands. And they tell me about their experiences and I'd listen. And so I know what I'm up against. My, my mom is single. And that change 
how I'm look how I looked at this. I you know, and I sat down with my mom and I made a plan, and we had this open conversation about this is what's going to happen to you. What do you want to happen? And let's write this down. And and uh, then I and, and I saw the problems that happened. You know, with the families that didn't plan well. So I sat down with my family and we had discussions and that helped reduce the conflict that was inevitable that was going to happen. And that experience changed again. You know, so my law practice changed, my personal life was changed, how I deal with my clients, the compassion I feel, uh, knowing the grief cycle, because I experienced it when they're dealing with someone who's aging. How has being a mom changed the way you practice? Oh, it's been a dramatic change in how I practice. Um, I think that ability to relate to my clients, especially those who are parents, right? That I, I like to say I've got a fire in my belly for representing parents who care for children because you know, all of my clients have been in a crisis. They've been injured in some way that's no fault of their own and it disrupts their entire life. You know, before uh, somebody experiences this type of trauma, you think, okay, you're off of work for a bit of time. You go to the doctor. What's the big deal, right? We, we've all been in sort of fender benders and it's hard to relate, right? But doing this type of practice for a number of years, I was able, you know, before I became a parent to just to see and empathize with the trauma that these folks have gone through, right? Not your average fender bender, a traumatic crash. Then when I became a parent, I realized how much goes into caring for children and in many, many homes, maybe most homes, I don't know, you know, the mom is that glue that holds the family together. Right. And there's so much that goes into not only making sure you've got the right groceries and, you know, you're managing things around the house, but coordinating schedules, being a nurturer, making sure people, you know, kids are on routines and get to bed on time, wake up on time, get to school on time when those days when we weren't virtual learning and actually going to school, right? You know, if mom goes down and she's injured and she's not able to be in her role at home a hundred percent, not only does that disrupt the whole family unit, but that is something that's a really, really difficult burden for those moms to bear. They feel like they're not good enough. They're not doing enough, even though their job in that moment is to get well and to heal and to do what their medical providers recommend so they can get back to the business of living and taking care of their families. And what I was able to see is that a lot of moms don't talk about it. Maybe don't even realize how much they're doing that, that, um, that unpaid labor that goes into making sure your family thrives. And so just even in those first, you know, few months of motherhood, understanding just what goes into really helping your family, I was able to relate to my clients and advocate for them and tell their stories in a new way. Um, and it's been really interesting how a lot of insurance adjusters, so a lot of my job is negotiating with insurance adjusters because they're the ones with the purse strings, um, how much the unpaid labor of what a mom does is undervalued. Right. Talk about that because that was exactly what I was thinking about is that's a unique set of damages. The, the 
the efforts that moms make primarily now there i'm not trying to be sexist there's fathers that will be more take the more caregiving role but let's be frank moms generally take the caregiving lead and moms generally take the, the brunt of the uh, household duties um so but and that has a value but does the law recognize that? How do you put a how do you put a number on that? How do you quantify? Tell me about that. Explore that with me. Yeah. So I will say the law recognizes it, but the insurance companies often don't. Um, okay. And so <laughs> Yeah. What I mean by that is that, you know, every state is different in how their laws are written, but in, in every state in the United States, there is a provision for what's called non-economic damages. So that's just a fancy law school word for pain, suffering, inconvenience, anxiety, fear, all of those things you don't get a receipt for, or you don't have a bill for right? Economic damages would be those things that I've got a medical bill that says, you know, this visit cost this amount of dollars. You know, I've got, um, I can calculate what my loss of wages, I couldn't go to work for these number of days. This is what I'm paid, you know, by the hour or a salary divided out. I can come up with a number for what that, the value of that is. So the law recognizes non-economic damages. So the, that unpaid labor that goes into running a family, that you know, one of the big ones for, for my clients who are parents is seeing their children realize their parents' mortality, yeah. right? Right. And the children then becoming afraid, my, my parent almost died, right? And, and so here we are, we've got a parent who's gone for, through a trauma and they're repeating that trauma or going through it again through the eyes of their children. That's a prime example of non-economic damages, but the insurance companies, you know, many of them are using things like computer programs or scripts or things where it's like, okay, you know, what are the demographics of the patient, age, height, weight, other information about them? Uh, you know, what type of crash was this? What were the injuries? How long was the treatment? And then, it, you know, either the computer program or the adjuster calculates a number based on those economic damages, those money damages. And then they try to negotiate. And that's often a really low number relative to the trauma the person has experienced, right? Like if you were hurt, Bob, you, I wouldn't go, hmm, Bob, you were in a crash. How many doctor's visits did you have? <laughs> right? Yeah. I'd yeah. ask you, oh my goodness, how are you? Are you okay? What happened? How have you been? How are you coping with this? And that all gets to non-economic damages, those pain and suffering damages. You touched on a subject that uh, I wanted to discuss today. And I want to tell you a little bit of the story and how I came across this. And it's this issue. The issue is how insurance adjusters reach a value. And I was talking to, this is years ago, I was talking to a friend of mine, not of this firm, who was a personal injury attorney, and he handles a lot of uh, lower uh, injury cases. You know, not people aren't injured tremendously. You call these soft tissue injuries, or they call them soft tissue injuries. And so he handles a lot of these types of cases. And he had this insurance adjuster come into his office and the insurance adjuster says, what do you mean you're not going to take $10,000 or whatever the number was? XYZ law firm 
you know, one of these high dollar law firms with the with the radio jingles and everything. XYZ uh, high dollar advertising law firm will take 6,000 on this claim every single day. And he says, well, that's great for them, but we're not. And I thought to myself, why? Why would they take this? And so I go back to my my uh, personal injury guy at my law firm. I was like, this just seems weird. Why would they, you know, have a different rate for this lawyer and a different rate for this lawyer? And says, oh, that's easy. It's Colossus. And I'm like, Colossus, tell me about that. And he says, well, you know, every insurance company has, you know, some sort of computerized software. You know, the biggest name is Colossus, but there's all sorts of other names. And and he says, and one of the factors of whether or not the price you get in a settlement is whether or not your attorney is well rated in Colossus. And I, my, I, I like it clicked on. I'm like, what? He says, oh, yeah, yeah. He says, it's does this attorney push your cases, push a case to trial? If yes, you're going to your offer is going to go up. Does this attorney win at trial? If yes, your offer goes up. And so it's almost like this becomes this, in my mind, it would seem like it would become almost a self-fulfilling prophecy that the attorney you choose has everything to do with the results you get, but not, and it's not necessarily the actual extent of your injury. Do I have this wrong? It's part of it, unfortunately. Um, so insurance companies and insurance agents or adjusters, I'm sorry, are mitigating their risk, right? So an insurance company is only profitable if they pay out less on claims than they take in on premiums, right? They would take in more money from their paying customers than they have to pay out to injured people that are injured by their customers, um, at least when it comes to auto insurance. And so Colossus and similar programs, right? Different insurance companies have different programs. Allstate came out with Colossus. I think it was in the 90s. Um, but, you know, they all have different versions of the way that they calculate damages. And so, you know, part of the part of the risk calculation, whether it's a computer program or not, is who your attorney is. And in, right, if you're injured in a car crash, for example, and you're overwhelmed, which is often the case of my clients, right? You're overwhelmed. I've never been in this situation. I'm in pain. I'm dealing with all these medical visits. I'm now getting calls from the insurance company. I, I realize I need some help. And I think when a person is in that position, they really do want to evaluate whether they, they can establish a rapport with their attorney because you're going to be working together for a while, but yeah. also looking at, does your attorney actually try cases? Because yeah. that increases the risk for the insurance company. If I come in, right, you know, I, I tell my clients, I signed up for this work. You know, you're in the driver's seat. If you choose to settle or choose to go to trial, you want to go to trial. That's what I signed up for. I love this work. You want to go to trial? Game on. I'm ready to fight. I'm a competitive person. I love this. But really, <laughs> you know, you're in communication with your clients. Sometimes to settle is the best decision for them. But, you know, as time goes on, I've developed a relation or a, a reputation with insurance companies where there are some cases where I refuse to negotiate. It's the policy limits. This is a permanent injury. You're going to pay the policy limits or we'll go to trial. And 
that you start to realize or they start to realize, I mean it. Um, and you end up getting the policy limits and settlement in some of those cases. But I think um, if, if the lawyer or the firm has a reputation for, you know, high volume in, we settle a lot of cases, you know, high volume out, that can be held against. That doesn't mean they're bad lawyers. They're often very, very good lawyers. It's just a different um, business model. And I will say that even those firms who, you know, maybe they settle a high volume of cases, they often have really, really great trial lawyers there too, so that when the cases require it, they do go to trial. But unfortunately, insurers look at, you know, if they're using these computer programs or, you know, just going off of reputation, uh, it's not seen as, oh, this is not as high of a risk for us. Interesting. What other things are they looking for? Because, you know, one of the things that I was really curious about when I started learning is that the insurance companies are looking for factors, right? They're looking and that plaintiffs will do things, the injured will do things that take, take the value of their claim down. What type of factors are they looking at? So I'm going to throw out another uh, legal term here, mitigation of damages. That's just a fancy law school word for does the plaintiff take care of him or herself, right? Um, So under the law, right, you may be hurt by no fault of your own and have that, you know, you're able to make a claim or go to to trial if, if it goes that far. But if you don't also try to get well, you know, go to the doctor, follow the doctor's advice and, and do everything within your power, reasonably so, right? Do everything within your power to try to get well. You know, you're going to be more successful either in settlement or in trial. If you just sort of say, I'm a tough person, I'm going to be all right. I don't really want to go to the doctor. You can't then come back later and say, oh, I have this injury that never went away. Right. Because you didn't try to take care of yourself. What what I say time and time again is I tell all, you know, anyone who comes for my help, as long as you tell the truth and you be the best medical patient you can be, I will I will have a way to help you. Right. Right. Every case is different. I approach every case differently. But if the person is telling the truth and they're being the best patient they can be, there's a way to help that person. That that makes sense to me because if they're if if they're not treating for the illness that or not the illness the injury that's caused, why should others pay for that? If they're not willing to do what it takes to get better, then you know why is the insurance company you know the the defendant in the case paying for that? It makes sense to me that that would be a factor. Um, what else? What else are they looking for? Well, so I think that some some people who are injured get really worried that, well, I had injuries before. I'm not like the perfect specimen of health or, you know, those busy moms, right. Who their doctor said, come to physical therapy three times a week, but they can't because of caring for children and things not to worry, right. Every case is different. And as long as you do the best that you can, um, there's going to be a way for an attorney to help you. But there's also a way to help yourself before you ever get in a crash. Okay. Um, and so I think that 
you know, if you keep in mind that, you know, hopefully the listeners, you know, who are listening, haven't been in a crash like this and never will get in one. But unfortunately, statistically speaking, if you're driving on the roads, you know, there, there are certain percentage of people who are going to get hurt. So, you know, that's why we have car insurance because, you know, we, we may get into crashes and have to, you know, either we've caused them or someone else has caused them and you want to make sure to pay for property damage. Well, the right. same philosophy comes to the coverage that you get for yourself just in case you also get injured or injure somebody else. So when you're, when you're signing up for your auto policy, you know, you may talk to an agent who um, will say, okay, let's get you full coverage. And people think full coverage means I'm protected. It doesn't always mean that because every state has what's called minimum limits. Oh, okay. Right. And so full coverage may mean you've just have the minimum that the state requires. So I think you're in Arizona, the, you know, the minimum is 25,000 per person, 50,000 per incident. Right. And so what that means is that if you're hit by somebody who has a minimum policy and you've got a pretty severe injury and a hospitalization, $25,000 is not going to go that far. Your hospitalization could cost 25,000. And if you try to make a claim, you're basically a bill collector for the hospital. Right. And So what is available when you're shopping for your auto insurance is underinsured and uninsured motorist coverage. Basically, you can get for yourself more coverage than that minimum level. So in the event of a really severe injury, there's more insurance coverage available to help take care of your bills, to pay you for your lost wages, and then something to compensate you for the trauma that you've gone through, right? So that people can put that chapter behind them. And there are benefits that uh, you can get in addition to that. So for example, medical payments benefits that are, I don't want to get too technical here, but basically, you know, you've got health insurance that may pay for part of, you know, your hospitalization, but you're going to have co-pays or maybe a deductible or things like that. You can get extra coverage that adds very, very little to your premium and won't increase your premium if you end up using it, if you need it to help cover your medical expenses in a really severe catastrophic injury type of situation. That makes a lot of sense to me. You know, um, my wife was in a car accident. There was someone ran into her. This is a couple years ago. And we, we had this sedan and, and big F-150 truck, you know, they just plowed into uh, five different cars. Apparently the uh, apparently the cupcakes on her <laughs> the cupcakes on the on the seat fell off and the lady went reached down to grab them and didn't stop and at, at every one of the stop sign and just plowed into like five different cars. Oh no! Oh. And she had minimum coverage, and there was you know several a couple different luxury sedans that she plowed into and. You know, and, you know, and she's got, you know, $25,000 of coverage. Well, that's obviously not going to go very far when you have multiple cars that were totaled. Um, No one was injured, thank goodness. But, you know, the property damage alone far exceeded the, you know, the available coverage. coverage. And so, you know, I, at this point, I call it my insurance carrier. I say, just do what you got to do. And handle it and uh you know it, it all worked it all worked out because i was well assured 
Yeah. Well, and actually, I, th- I think that the the minimum limits for property damage are even less than twenty five thousand, right? And so, you know, you can you can take a look at your policy and just even if you just bump up your coverage one level above the minimum, the peace of mind that that gives you to protect yourself or if you have any passengers, right? So even if you are in a crash that's no fault of your own, right? Your your passengers may not have vehicles of their own or additional coverage or you know, you may have your kids in the car, right? You just want to make sure that you have that peace of mind to know we are protected in the event of a, of of some crash that causes injury and that extra medical payments coverage will also extend to passengers potentially, you know, obviously check your, with your insurance and, and how it, the policy is written, but, you know, just, it's sort of like being that good caretaker of, of your family and the people that you, you bring into your car. It really does, at least for me, provide a level of, of peace of mind that in the event of something really catastrophic, we've done our best to protect ourselves. I, I couldn't agree more. Megan, I want to thank you for coming on the show. It's been so nice having you. I like what you have to say here today. I think it's really important. I like the fact that you're advocating for moms out there and uh, I wish you the absolute best. Thank you so much, Bob. It's been a pleasure. I will say I am really enjoying the conversations I'm having with women lawyers and women judges. Um, I'm coordinating now with a few judges that have um, expressed willingness to come on the podcast. So I, I I know that's a tease. I can't necessarily say yet that I've got them confirmed, but you know, women who are in high power positions in law firms, diversity, equity, and inclusion directors, federal judges, state court judges, um, women who own their own firms. It's just a pleasure to be able to amplify what they're doing in their legal careers and also talk about just real issues that are coming up. Um, So if anyone wants to follow Mom Life and Law, you can find me on all the podcast apps and my website, momlifeandlaw.com. So, you know, I hope that people will tune in. Folks, thank you for listening. This has been the podcast, Is That Even Legal? A discussion of what's legal. Just as a reminder, this is not legal advice for you. This is general information. It's meant to be educational. If you have specific legal needs, don't be afraid to reach out to an attorney to get good legal advice. Attorneys are lovable. They're fun. They want to hear from you. See you next time.